Hola, hola. Welcome to the season of Spring Mujeres here at Latinas B2B. We hope you are feeling inspired and rejuvenated by celebrating Mother Earth and all that she has to give. So let's just get to it right now. We are going to move beyond being silenced and we are going to move into our power in the seasons ahead of us. My honored guest is Monica Ramirez who has been a longtime advocate, organizer, and social entrepreneur, but most importantly, an attorney fighting to eliminate gender-based violence and secure gender equity. For over two decades, she has fought for the civil and human rights of women, children, workers in the Latinidad communities, but most importantly, the immigrants from the farm worker community, where it all started for her at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We will be discussing her letter she wrote as co-founder and board president of the National Farm Workers Women's Alliance, which is the Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, which is one of the many articles that she wrote, which has been featured in Time Magazine, and she has been listed in Time Magazine's Next 100 list in 2021. We will learn of the work she has done with the Justice for Migrant Women, her nonprofit organization, and the Bandana Project, which turns 15 years the quince of her passion project, which will be promoted all year long. But her latest projects, Mujeres, are the Podistas and the Latinx House to help change the portrayal of the Latinx community in the U.S. by elevating and amplifying the voices of content of Latinx artists, entertainers, policy experts, and grassroots organizers. I'd like to dedicate this podcast to all the essential workers who have kept us fed and to keep raising the awareness of their mental health and safety concerns for this hardworking community. And let me just say, this is a trigger warning. This podcast discusses some topics of domestic violence, sexual assault survivors, and mental health trauma. Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom, where wisdom comes from everywhere. This is a podcast about generational wisdom shared to help build a bridge for future generations and to build stronger communities through education, technology, and health. Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Welcome, Monica, to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. It is my absolute honor to have you on this show. I know we've been playing, I want to say LinkedIn messaging tag for like (laughs) two years to try to make this happen, especially when COVID hit and all the work that you were doing. I really just wanted to galvanize our messaging around community and what was happening at the time and your leadership and the, the foundation you have set for a lot of comunidad. And that's where I'd like to start today. And that this is the time for our change. And I'm so happy to have you on this show. Thank you, Teresa. That's so good to be here. And thank you for playing tag and, and being persistent. I'm just I'm <laughs> glad that we're finally connecting. It is a little trait, I have been told. I'm a little bulldog about wanting things. And so you just have to stick to the course. But I said, I have to have Monica on the show because every time I see you pop up in my LinkedIn, I'm like, this has to happen because the platform you're creating is just too monumental. And the messaging that you have is very much to the audience that listens to this podcast. So thank you for that. And I would love to hear your story of how your family migrated from Mexico to Ohio, right? It's like there was another pathway to the Midwest versus California. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, thank you. And, you know, actually, I'm the first generation in my family that did not have to migrate for the purposes of work, meaning I did not follow the migrant stream like my parents. But in the United States, I'm actually the third generation also. Both sides of my family came from Mexico. My dad's side came from San Luis Potosí. My mom's side came from Cahuila. And initially they were border crossers. So they lived on the U.S.-Mexico border and they were coming to the United States to do different jobs like domestic work and things of that nature. And separately, 
Both the families created their own journey and made the decision to come to the U.S. to work in agriculture. My mom's family settled in the San Antonio area, and, and that was their base, and they migrated from there. My father's family was down in uh, the Rio Grande Valley. So McAllen, Brownsville, all the folks who are listening from the Valley, I see you. <laughs> and so eventually both sides started to migrate to different parts of the Midwest, so Michigan, Ohio. For my dad's side of the family, they actually, they did migrate around the Midwest, but they eventually went to Mississippi. And that's where my dad actually started working in the fields when he was eight. Uh, he started picking cotton as an eight-year-old boy, which I, I sit with that often because before I was like, gosh, I can't imagine being an eight-year-old boy. But now I have an eight-year-old boy and I cannot imagine my son starting to work in the fields full time to help feed his family like my dad did. So my father and mother worked in the fields. My mom, she was raised by her my great-grandparents and, and so she kind of worked more casually. Um, she wasn't working in the same way that my dad did, but both my mom and dad worked in the fields and eventually both of their families migrated to Ohio because they heard that there was a lot of work here. And their stories are much longer and I won't go into them, but to say, Ultimately, my parents stopped and my grandparents stopped traveling the migrant stream because a farmer in Mississippi gave my family a break. They, this farmer took an interest in my father and um, actually sent him to school. He taught my father how to read and write when my dad was 14. Wow. And as a 14-year-old, my dad went to school for the first time and eventually graduated from high school, which allowed him to start working in a factory when he came to Ohio, which meant that that was a possibility for my family to stop traveling you know, to follow the crops. And my mom's side of the family, there was a farmer in Ohio who gave my great-grandfather a chance to stay at his farm year-round to work on the farm. And that, that was the end of, of their traveling the stream. And I mentioned that because it's really significant for anyone who comes from a farm worker family whose family migrated, you know just how hard it is to break the cycle, to leave the stream. And so I never, ever, I always always want to lift up those two farmers because fundamentally it was about these two individuals who took a shot on my family. And I think that, that as I said, you probably in your life of experience that there have been people who've taken a shot yes. on you, right? There've been people who've taken a shot on me over and over again. So super important for me to lift those two farmers up. And, you know, eventually when my family left the fields, that created a new pathway for us. And that meant that myself and my siblings could live in a town year round. We could go to school from kindergarten through high school, full time, no breaks, no moving. And that was amazing. And you know, my story isn't a common story. I was able to go, you know, essentially the trajectory for my family was from the fields to Harvard Square. That's not a trajectory that a lot of folks get to talk about, and I get to talk about that because someone took a shot on us. Right. And that's, you know, in other podcasts, I've talked about opportunities that are presented to you. And sometimes we don't know what it means. You know, there's a lot of foster care in my family. And that started way back when my grandmother and everybody were working in the fields and they got sick. Right. And I don't want to bring the whole pandemic into it, but Tuberculosis back then was a big deal. And the families got separated because they got care, but they became wards of the state. And my grandmother and her sisters had to take care of her younger siblings once they got out. So survival became a part of their legacy, right? And where they came from. So it is absolutely true. Someone did take a chance on them, gave them an opportunity, but it was hard. And, you know, sometimes the military was a part of that opportunity, which a lot of, you know, comunidad looks to because that's a job that they can get, right? Or work. And, you know, I don't have to bring the whole war aspect into this, but it's almost like where do we find the pathways to build when we have an opportunity? And here is an opportunity to come to the country and to make a start. But yes, it does take some time, someone to give you that opportunity. Yeah, and it also, like something that you're saying really resonates with me, which is it takes someone to give us a break. But then one of the things that I admire so much about so many people in our community is that 
our community is figuring out like how do you take that break and how do you take that opportunity and how do you make it 10 more opportunities right you know when people when you talk about the military i know there many people in my family have joined the military and it was because it was a job but also it was a pathway to education so i feel like one of the very strong attributes that we have as a community is they were always trying to figure out like how can we make it like what are the opportunities for us to have a chance to make it and then how do we make sure that those opportunities become available to other people our cousins our kids yeah the legacy right how do we start to build that pathway which is what this podcast is doing and to share that story and the education and we all build the bridge together. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up is that journey and the pathway because you started telling a story at a very young age in Ohio, right? And part of your story is somebody did give you an opportunity to share those stories. Is that where you began your journey in sharing the story or was it a pivotal moment where you decided I need to tell these stories? I think it was a combination of things because just as much as it's about someone giving you a shot, you've got to take the shot, right? And so for me, I started writing about farm workers in the community where I'm from and the Latino community for the newspaper. And the reason I did that was because when I was a 14-year-old kid, I noticed that there was a welcome back fisherman section of our newspaper, but there wasn't a welcome back farm worker section of the paper. And I talked to my dad about that because I thought that was weird <laughs> because I had been educated about farm workers and I knew farm workers came back to our town every year and I didn't understand why they wouldn't do the same thing for the farm workers. And so my dad encouraged me to ask about it and I did. And, and you're right, you know, the editor gave me a chance to tell the stories and, and I became a freelance writer and I always laugh. I kind of, it makes me giggle a little bit because I'm like, I was a 14 year old with a beat. I had a newspaper beat and my <laughs> newspaper beat was writing about farm workers and Latinos. And, you know, I said yes, because I liked writing and, and it seemed interesting to me and I wanted to make sure the stories were told, but it was actually, I think, in the process of telling those stories that I actually realized that I had to continue to do it because you know, you talk to people all the time who tell you their stories. And for someone who has never been asked to tell their story, there's this, like, it's a light that goes on in them. You know, that someone's finally taking an interest. Or I just remember that feeling when I was interviewing people who, who no one had ever asked them their opinions or their feelings or their story, their history. Like, I felt like a physical change in them that I was witnessing. And I realized that that was power. So every time I interviewed someone, I felt like I was bringing forth their power. And that was amazing to me. You know, I was just a teenager, but I was cognizant of what was happening. And that led me to tell more and more and more stories and different kinds of stories. You know, the stories about how Latinos arrived in Fremont, Ohio, where I'm from, evolved into, you know, the reality of farm workers at that time, which led to advocacy pieces about what was needed. So there was sort of an evolution in the writing that took place over time. And I actually, by the time I was a junior in high school, um, I had my own column and it was called The Voice of the People. And I always laugh about that too, because I'm like, I'm not sure that at 16 years old, I should have been the voice of the people, but I was, <laughs> they let me. And so I just wrote about whatever I thought was interesting or important. Well, you didn't even know you were setting a seed that would grow into where you are today. I mean, isn't that weird when you start to think about that in a way? Like, uh, you know, when you go back and there's always like, what would you tell your younger self? And it's like, gosh, I would tell myself a lot of things. But for you, you're like, well, I was saying this and I thought maybe I shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's so, and you're so right. And it, to me, you're so, it's so interesting because we don't know where our paths are going to take us. And we don't know what a yes will do for ourselves in our future. And a long time ago, Elizabeth, I, was, I heard a speech Elizabeth Warren gave at Harvard. I was a student and she came back and she gave a speech and she, she talked about how she just kept saying yes. People would come to her with opportunities and she just kept saying yes. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know where they were going to go. And I really appreciate that so much because if I had said, no, I don't want to write those stories or no, I don't think I can or no, I need more training, then I never maybe would have done it. And you're exactly right in that that has been the foundation of all the work that I've done throughout 
my teen years, my school age years uh, until now. Ah, oh, I love it. I, I've read a lot of your articles and we're going to get to some of those. All right. So tell me about why you wanted to become a lawyer and then how that galvanized a, a lot, I think, from there on. So I actually had been a I had been practicing law for about 12 years before I went to Harvard. So I went back to school. That's a story in and of itself, which I can share with you. But I decided to become a lawyer because I had you know, been writing articles for so many years about the farm worker and Latinx community and just kept uncovering injustices, conditions that had existed. You know, when my family worked in the fields, things had not changed. And I arrived at a certain point where I said, you know, Telling the stories is important, but I want to be able to win justice for people. And so that's when I made the decision to go to law school. I started as a summer college student. I started working at the local legal services, and I learned a ton from those lawyers. I'm still in touch with them. I'm still friends and partners with them. And that's eventually how I went to law school. And I was very laser-focused when I was in law school because law school is really hard, not just academically. It's just a really challenging environment to be in. And I was one of five Latinx community members in my class, so there were not many of us, and it was challenging to stay, frankly. But I was so laser-focused on serving the farm worker community, and so I went there with that mission and then was able to create my dream project, which was what started my first legal project, Serving Farm Worker Women in Florida, that evolved to become a national project with Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, but fast forward to Harvard, I was actually working at a transnational legal organization at the time when I made the decision to apply. It was never something I planned to do. Harvard was never like on my radar, really. But at that particular time when I was working for the organization, unfortunately, we experienced some major security threats. And, you know, I received death threats and it wasn't safe for me to continue doing the work the way that I was doing it. Law enforcement was involved and it just, you know, I just had a baby. My baby was three months old and I got my first death threats and I had to live under lockdown for a period of months. And so, you know, it was at that time one of my mentors said, Harvard has this program. Why don't you apply to it? You can get away, you can get safe and you can still continue on this forward path, but at least it's an opportunity for you to take a step away from what you're doing right now. And so that's actually why I applied. I applied at the like, I took like the last possible test to get in. I applied the last possible moment. I wasn't sure that I was going to go. And then after I got accepted, I was I was actually thinking about turning it down because it felt like, you know, I've been practicing law. I had my career. And then there was another threat that actually involved my niece. And so it was clear to me that I had to step away. So it, Harvard was never something that I had planned to do it was not sort of on my list of my bucket list of things. Right. It was something that was necessary at the time. Wow. So here's an opportunity that came to you in the moment that was needed, because just listening to that, at the last moment you took the test, at the last minute you were able to get in because this was happening to you in Florida. That's really impactful. I mean, there's always that divine intervention, you know, not to get very spiritual here, but some things happen for a reason. And thank God that you are here and nothing happened to you and your family. I can't imagine that fear of, you know, with a young baby and then your extended family. So thank God that you're you're here. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. <laughs> and actually that that actually um, just for point of clarification, I was actually working in Maryland at the time. So I started my project in Florida, then I took it national, and then eventually ended up working in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So you're doing social justice work, and that is a heightened opportunity where people look at that as a threat. And these type of industries, people want to shut down and your voice, and they want to suppress the voice. And That's right. when you are in that predicament, that is what they try to do is to cause the fear. And it really takes courage and support to really move forward. And I feel that sometimes with this podcast, in fact, because I feel that we say things sometimes and people don't like them because we're kind of breaking or pushing that status quo. And I love it because we will not be quiet. We will not be silent. I won't be silent. That's why I started this podcast. And I, that's why I love having you on here and many other chingonas that are not going to just stand by the, the sidelines. 
So I want to talk about when you went to Harvard and you had your son and you graduated. Is that when you started the Project for Justice for Migrant Women? Yeah, actually, yeah. So my little boy and I, and my husband was, um, my husband continued to work in D.C., so he would come up with us once a month, you know, because he continued, he had his job. But I had a tia come with me to live with me in Boston, which I just want to give a shout out to all of our familia because that's what our families do, mm-hmm. you know. I was like, I can't go to Harvard. I have a one, I have a baby. Like, how am I supposed to go to Harvard? And I had a tia. She said, I'm, I'll come with you. And that day I actually got sick, and so she couldn't. And then this other tia said, okay, I'll come with mm-hmm. you. It was like never a question. Like, the tias were going to show up. Right? <laughs> That's, what we, That's, what, we That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do. Yeah, and so when I was there, then that gave me the opportunity to you know really think about how was I going to take this project that I started in 2003 to build the foundation for justice for migrant women. You know, I took that project to Southern Poverty Law Center. I kept building it over the years. I wanted the, it to be its own nonprofit, to, you know, a standalone organization. And so I took that time when I was at Harvard to build the plan, you know, the vision statement, all, all the things that you need to do to set up a nonprofit. That's where Justice for Migrant Women was born and formalized. And, you know, thankfully today we are a 501c3 nonprofit Yay. organization and mm-hmm. growing and, you know, so our, our t- I always say that our team is like, we're like the train, the little train that could, you know, like we didn't have any resources. <laughs> we were like volunteers for a long time and then we just kept pushing and pushing. And so here we are. And it's, it's pretty incredible to watch it grow and evolve. I love it. No, it is. And that's the thing too, is that these things take time. They don't happen overnight. And you are fueled by the mission and purpose that you say, I'm going to keep going. And there's usually an incident behind it or something that has happened that has affected you. For me, it was, you know, tech and seeing the inequity there and me being in tech for so long. And I'm like, why are things not changing? What's happening? There's a lot there to unpack. That's not for me to say here. What I want to hear is you going out there. You are taking down the system, not right today, but your message in the platforms that you have brought people together to do this, right, against women that are being harassed, they're being marginalized, and during COVID and their families, I mean, I said, I don't understand how people cannot see the realness of humanity in what is happening, not just with that, but how all that community has been keeping this country going, not even that, the global economy, because a lot of the fruits and vegetables that come from this country get exported and they are not here, right? There's a lot of import-export that's going on. So, I mean, it's just the, the lack of humanity, right? And the shame that is put down in that that nobody sees. And that's, you know, that's really hard. And it continues and it's trauma that lives within our extended families. I'd love to hear your point on that. Yeah, there's so much, right? Well, it's also like there's not just one motivation. And I think our thinking changes and, you know, we experience things that sends us in a different direction. So in my case, you know, I've spoken publicly about the fact that, you know, sexual violence, unfortunately, is an issue that has impacted my family. I am a survivor. I am a survivor of domestic violence as well. And... You know, when you live in fear and when you live harm, and at a certain level, when you have the opportunity to continue to live, or when you choose to live, depending on your own your circumstance, that's a kind of power that is something that is immeasurable. And I think that when you are so close to dying or to experiencing grave pain that you hold, you know, at least for me, there was a point when you make a decision. Like, how will you live? How will you use the life that you have? You know, and and I made a decision about how I wanted to use my life. You know, I made a choice to live. And I made a choice about how I wanted to live my life. And so for me, my calling has been to raise up something that is taboo in our community, which is sexual violence. My calling has been to do all that I can as one human, just one person, to try to keep people from feeling that kind of pain. You know, because I think for those of us who are survivors, we understand at the deepest level what it means to live that pain and what it requires 
to continue living after you've had that experience, right? Yes. And so my highest calling, I think, and what I offer every day in my work is the hope that there will be a day when someone doesn't have to feel that. Oh, God. It's true. Domestic violence has been in my family for a long time. And when you have that and you try to, I think that's part of why I do what I do as well, because I can't stand for that oppression of we're not able to live how we want to live in certain industries, communities, our lives. And this is, I think that's why I, I really am a, like, I'm so drawn to your purpose because it's a legacy of my family. And then also, you know, what I see today, all of our voices together are coming and they're getting louder and I love it. You know, we're all coming to that platform and I love, you know, the letter that you wrote that you wrote the letter during the Me Too and the Time's Up, right? Towards Hollywood, which was how 700,000 women. So the Dear Sisters letter, yeah. So, you know, at the time when um, I wrote the Dear Sisters letter, I was the president of the board of Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, which is the first national farmworker women's organization. And we were, you know, our, our work, our mission was to represent the interests of the 700,000 farmworker women in this country. And, mm-hmm. you know, that letter that I said, that was love and writing. Yeah. It was an extension of grace to women who at that particular moment really needed people to reach out and say that they understood them. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, well, why would you have written that letter to people in Hollywood? Like, they've got plenty. they got money. They've got attention like why and the truth is that they're women who experience something really horrible right and all of us who experience things that are really horrible like if we've experienced something so bad in our lives you know what do we want we want someone to say i'm with you yeah we want someone to say we care we want someone to say we see you and that letter basically was that you know it wasn't written as a letter it was actually written as a statement that was going to be read at at a march but it was published in a a magazine. So it became known as this letter, Um, but it wasn't, you know, so much of what's happened in my work and in my life, it wasn't strategic. It wasn't planned. It happened. And then you kind of follow the work as it moves you. Right. And so this letter gets published in time magazine and then it went viral. And I never thought we would actually talk to anyone in Hollywood. You know, we were making a statement, but you know, you make statements all the time. You don't think anyone's going to call you. <laughs> and, right. And they did, you know, and then it created this beautiful relationship and the opportunity to do joint work. And I've really been fortunate and loved the joint work that we've been able to do. As you know, that led to then the creation of the Latinx house and that led later to the creation of Poderista. So we've continued to build on that work and take it, it in different directions. But I think to your point around trauma, and I don't want to I don't want to miss that because I think it's a really important part of this conversation. Yes. We do hold, we hold the trauma that we've lived and experienced, but we do hold the trauma of our families as well. And, you know, it's generational trauma. It is sometimes literally in our DNA, depending on what's been experienced. And we carry that forward. And, and, you know, and I think for me and the work that I do and so much of my work, relates to children and is about making things better so that kids don't experience this and so that the world is better, the, the, the world our kids inherit is better. You know, part of that is how do we heal ourselves? Like, how do we figure out how we heal ourselves so that my child doesn't carry that trauma and his children don't carry that trauma? And I think that's part of the work that we're all doing now. And thank goodness, because for how long in our community have we been told not to talk about those things? Right. Private. It's got to keep quiet about that stuff. You know, you don't talk about that outside of the family. And I think for so long, because we felt shame and because people said we were not supposed to talk about those things that weren't good or nice, we just held it all. And that was toxic for us. And so thankfully, we're in a place in our society where we're just talking about it because talking about it is also central to our survival. Right. No, absolutely. I'm there with you. I mean, like I said, it's taken a long time, right, for me and my mother and everybody, you know, we're we're just getting to that point, right? And how many years, 
you know, when I think back to my grandmother and her grandmother and it's coming out, but it's, it's healing. Like you said, it, it's healing. And I think these platforms give us that opportunity to heal together. So anybody and everybody that's listening out there, you know, I feel like we're embracing you. And that's why I wanted you on the show to talk about this. And I, I don't know, I'm just I'm full of so many emotions right now. I'm trying thank to you. I'm well, trying to focus. <laughs> thank you for trusting me, Teresa. Thank you for trusting me and for sharing your story and your family's story with me because it's difficult to do. And, you know, for everyone who's listening, it's important for you to know that you are not alone and that you are not the only one. And your family is not the only one. Many of our families have experienced this and we've got you. We've got each other. And, and that is, we have to have faith in that because that is how we will be able to continue to heal and move forward. But we got to do it together. It can't be one of us or two of us. It's got to be all of us together. And, you know, with the faith that we're changing things. So let's take a quick break. Mi gente, the Bandana Project is a public awareness campaign aimed at addressing the issue of workplace sexual violence against farm worker women in the United States. It is an art activism and advocacy project that serves as a healing tool for women across the U.S., Mexico, and other countries. For many years, farm worker women have used layers of clothing, including hats and bandanas, as shields to help protect them from harassment and sexual violence while working in the fields. The Bandana Project uses white bandanas as a symbol of sexual exploitation of farm worker women. In solidarity, farm worker community members, advocates, and other individuals decorate the white bandanas to honor those who have taken action to hold the perpetrators and their employers responsible for the violence. These bandanas are also a show of support to victims whose shame and fear prevents them from taking action. Allies decorate these bandanas in an attempt to help support, fortify, and empower farmworker women as they face this difficult problem in the hopes that they will no longer have to suffer in silence. The entire month of April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, but we must fight all year long and participate in whatever way we are able. We appreciate all of your support for the Bandana Project through justiceforwomen.org. And we would appreciate it if you could donate and become a partner to help raise awareness. Again, that's justiceforwomen.org. And it is the Bandana Project. Gracias. Yep. The purpose of the stories, too, is to leverage the technology that we have available to us now. You know, when you think about technology from the past and to where we are today, there's so much expression involved in how we can share stories and really bring more people together. And that's why I want to leverage a lot more technology in this capacity, because there's a lot of power in it. Obviously, we've seen it in the media in general, but when we use it to bring communities together, which <laughs> I'm sorry, we're the biggest users of that technology and how we share things. I mean, everything. I mean, it's like I've said in the past, it's like your Thea is sitting at the table, right? It's like they know they know everybody's business and they know everybody's and business. now they can spread it all through social media. So it's like you're <laughs> you're totally busted. With right? the memes. Right. With the memes. <laughs> <laughs> I saw something before we start recording. I saw a story yesterday that made me laugh. I think it was on Me Too and it said, you know, like five things that the that Latinx people are never late to or something. Or the, it was like me sad. They had like a whole thing, but it said for the cheese mitt. We're never late for the cheese mitt. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it was funny. I'm telling you, and you can use your phone like you know as a meme, at like the chancla coming at you through like you know Twitter or you know. <laughs> so funny. It's so funny. Oh my goodness! So I think um, needed that laugh there. But I want to talk about the Healing Voices now and that program, or we can talk about the humans that who feed us your project, though any one of those projects, I love them. So, Well, so, you know, the Healing Voices Project 
for me was a really important move for us because first of all, it was totally generated from the community. During the pandemic, you know, we were trying to understand what the the most pressing needs were for the farm worker community. Early on, we were focused on raising money through our farm worker fund to get people money and food and whatever they needed. And then it, we created the Masks for Migrants projects to make sure that farm workers were getting masks. You know, and I'm proud to say that all told with the the fund and the masks and some of the other in-kind aid that we were able to raise, I think we've surpassed like $9.2 million in aid. Oh gosh, that's wonderful. That's been given to, to workers through our partner organizations as well in, in 35 states in Puerto Rico. So it's had really far reach. So for all the folks who help support that, thank you. That is your work. And we were able to reach a lot of community members. That work is continuing because the need is still there. But one of the things that emerged as we were having these conversations with people was it wasn't just food and rent and things like that that people needed. They just continued to talk about the stress that they were experiencing and how it was difficult for them to function, how they were worried about their children not being able to, you know, to go to school or to graduate from school. And so it was really clear to us that one of the needs that was unmet had to do with mental health. So Healing Voices was created as a a mental health project for farm workers. Because of the pandemic, we were not able to do groups in person, so we did all of the groups via Zoom. And we did a pilot starting in Florida and California. We had English and Spanish and bilingual groups. Uh, we had groups that were with parents and groups that were with non-parents, groups that were with migrating farm workers and groups that were with non-migrating farm workers. And um, we, you know, we worked very closely with the Latinx Therapy network, which is one of our partners. The National Migrant Seasonal Head Start Association was a partner. Eva Longoria Foundation was a partner. And each each of these partners really, we brought something different to the table. And we also knew that because we, Justice for Women, we are not mental health experts. We needed mental health experts to create the curriculum. So we worked with Latinx a Therapy Network on that and then also had another therapist help write it. And, you know, those groups from the feedback that we've received from the participants, they've said, you know, they were, they'd never had counseling before. You know, there'd been a lot of stigmas around going to counseling. It was transformative for them. And, you know, I wish that we could continue to do that at scale across the country. Certainly it's a very expensive endeavor, but one of the things that I've tried to say about the project as we've been building it is, you know, mental health is a health, it's a workplace health and safety issue. We don't treat mental health as a workplace health and safety issue, and we need to as a country. You know, we we treat people who get cut at work. We treat people who have other kinds of injuries at work. But what about the injuries that people are sustaining to their emotional and mental health at work? We're not doing that as a country, and we need to. And so it is my hope that we will be able to scale the project to reach more farm workers, but also other industries, and ultimately, you know, we're talking to the Department of Labor about what it would take to actually create a new standard so that health, you know, when we look at the health and safety um, protections for, that are afforded to workers, then mental health will be included. So we have a long way to go, but that's the project. Yeah, no, it sounds incredible. And I think it is very important that big corporations offer benefits. I mean, this is like, there's so much there around the health and safety for farm workers. One of the things that I always think about is the toxicity of the chemicals. I mean, I know there's been a lot of change around that, but it's still not done. And this is what grinds my gears kind of is how the ag business gets away with non-OSHA, because this falls under OSHA, I think, right? Yes, it would fall under OSHA if there was a standard. Mm -hmm. And and the labor practices, because there's so many via OSHA violations, right? And it's like, how do they how do they get away from that as a major corporation that has skilled workers that I, I, I you're talking to the labor department. So I feel, you know, like, how does this not fall under that policy, right? Well, there there isn't a standard for mental health in our country. And that, I mean, we need to change that. And and it isn't just farm workers, you know. It look look at the news. Every day we're hearing about more people who are in have mental health distress 
because of the pandemic, but it isn't just because of the pandemic. Farm workers were experiencing distress before the pandemic. You know, when you are a poor person in this country, when you don't know if you're going to have enough money to pay your bills or to buy food or to help send your children to school with with school clothes or school shoes or, you know, when you don't have what you need, that creates stress in your life. And there are many workers and many people across our country who are experiencing high levels of stress every day. And so to me, it, it is a no-brainer that mental health needs to be considered a protected right in our country, but we don't have that yet. And so we, there's, and it's not just the Department of Labor and OSHA that need to make changes. You know, we need to look at HHS and we need to look at various other agencies to see who can ensure that people are getting this kind of aid. Certainly, you know, there are benefits available under Medicaid, but the problem is that a lot of uh, therapists and mental health professionals, they don't accept Medicaid or even insurance. People have to pay out of pocket. So then it becomes an issue where the privileged who can afford to pay $100, $200, $300 an hour can get the services. And those who can't just we can't allow that in this country. And so that's what we're trying to change. And And I believe that we will. And I believe that we are on a path to do that. And I'm grateful that we've been able to start building this project with the farm worker community because they're the among the most who need this right now in this country. And, and I think that we have a lot to learn from them. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I want to express the other project that you're doing, the Bandana Project. Yeah, it's our quinceañera. Do you know that? No, it is. It is our quinceañera. Can you believe it? Oh I mean, God. I'm I'm so young. Like, how do I have a 15-year-old baby? <laughs> but I do. Um, the bandana project I created 15 years ago. Wow. Blows my mind. The quinceañera will be in June, actually. 15 years ago in June. And the bandana project is a public awareness project focused on elevating the issue of sexual violence against farmworker women. Back in the 80s, there was an article that was written that talked about how farmworker women used their clothes, including bandanas, to protect them from unwanted sexual attention. And so fast forward to 2007, and I created this project. 2006, I guess, really is when we started to build it, but 2007 was when it was launched because we wanted to have a public symbol to show that there were people who were committed to ending sexual violence. And this was really important because at the time, this was when a lot of conversation was happening around immigration reform in our country. And there was a lot of pushback and retaliation against immigrants. And for the women who I served, they were saying that perpetrators were telling them no one wants them here. No one believed them. They were making threats against them to report them to immigration if they didn't do what they were being asked to do, the demands that were being made of them. So For me in that moment, it was very critical that we do something that was a public display of support for farmworker women to kind of use the bandanas, the the white flag that we were planting to say, we are with farmworker women. We, they are not alone. We believe them. And so now, years later, the, the project has grown. Thousands of bandanas have been decorated and displayed all over the United States and in different parts of the world. You know, they've been on display in museums and health centers. Little children have decorated them in classrooms. I mean, it's really, again, this is an example of something that you create something and you don't know where it's going to go or what's going to happen. And it's definitely a project that sort of has taken on a life of its own. So when is the anniversary coming up for that? Actually, yeah. So April is um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month in the United States. So we'll kick off the quinceañera for the Bandana Project in April as a part of that Awareness Month. But technically, the quinceañera is June because I created it in June. It was launched in June of 2007. So we're going to be doing activities all year. You'll get to hear from people who are talking about how the project impacted them over the years, people who participated, farmworker women who have been part of it. You know, oh, that's wonderful. In California, farmworker women, you know, we, we would send bandanas and the project kit to, to our different participants, but in California, they, they, they wanted to participate at such a level and they needed more supplies. So some of the women for, with the organization Lideres Campesinas, they went to the store and they bought white sheets and they measured the bandana and they cut them and they made their own. So I mean, it's just amazing wow. what's happened with the project. Yeah. 
So stay tuned all year for the what's coming. So that's coming this year. So we can all look out for that. That's impressive. 15 years and it's still going strong and it's global now. So we can look for that on your platform. So I want to, you know, start to close this out by saying all this foundational work, Monica, that you have done is so instrumental, not only to, you know, the younger generation, but for me, that's older. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's making an impact on both ends, which is why I want to hear now how you're bringing it to a bigger platform in media. I believe through the Latinx house and the recent partnership that happened with you and Latinx house through this bigger media platform, which is film. Can you share a little bit about that before we go? Well, so the Latinx house is an organization that I co-founded that is focused on amplifying the greatness and the excellence of the Latinx community. You know, there is a false narrative in this country about who we are. There's a narrative that the Latino community, the Latinx community, that we are takers, not givers. There's a perception that we are not contributing, that we are, you know, some people have spread spread things about us being, you know, um, drug dealers and, and lots of other negative stereotypes about our community. And the Latinx House is focused on lifting up the power of our community. We are contributing in so many ways, but it's not just through Hollywood. It's not just the actors and the creators. You know, I was brought to the table to help build the Latinx House, and I was very strong in that I said, I will do this, but it cannot only be about Hollywood. It has to be about other people in our community who are making change. It needs to be about the janitors and the domestic workers and the farm workers who are just as powerful and important in our country and in our community as the highest profile people and the most well-known and recognized people. So that's been how we've been building this house. And, you know, so we've been able to uplift actors and movies. We launched at Sundance Film Festival in 2020. We've now been at Sundance for you know the past three years and had the chance to help with the premieres of some really incredible movies and um, to highlight great musicians and DJs and authors and just so many amazing folks. And, you know, but we're not just talking about the need for representation. We're also doing the work to make sure that representation happens. So we just announced a really huge partnership with Sundance Institute, Shondaland, and Netflix. Oh my goodness. Um, to make, to, to create a, what we are calling the Adelante Directors Fellowship. Oh, wonderful. Which is for Latina and non-binary Latinx directors because we are very underrepresented as directors and directors have so much power, right? And so we just created that. We just announced a partnership with um, Bad Robot and The Blacklist to try to help enlist more, to get more writers seen in the industry. And so, you know, Bad Robot and The Blacklist created a voucher waiver system so that writers could submit their scripts through the blacklist and they would also have the opportunity for script review. So we're helping to disseminate 500 waivers to writers. So it's about if if we want to see stories that represent us and if we want art and music and books and movies to be authentic, we need to be the ones writing the stories and telling the stories. And so part of the work that we're trying to do is We are trying to create those opportunities through these pipeline projects. But the other part of the work is I believe that there are incredible people across our country who have important stories that need to be told. And they don't know the movie writers or the movie directors or the casting agents. And so part of our work is to bring folks together to meet, to learn, to know each other. And so I'm just really proud of what we're doing and it's as you know very different than the work I've done in the past in some ways but also if you look at the way that I started my work when I was a 14 year old kid it's very much in line with what I've been doing really my whole career. I know that's why it's so wonderful when you said the voice of the people right and then here we are today after all these years it's such an impressive pathway that you've created and 
I love every second of it. And I'm, I'm here to support you and do whatever we can in our audience, you know, where we can find you on all your social media channels, all the different uh, programs that you have and how we can contribute and just all of us collectively bringing the voice together that we do need to be represented in these spaces. We need to show up and be there in not just one. I think you've said this too, not just in one category, but we have to show up across the spectrum. We have to show up across the spectrum, but we also have to know, we have to know when we should lead and we have to know when we should follow. There can be more than one or two or three organizations or leaders. We don't have to only have one. And that's really important because we need to support each other. So I'm going to cheerlead for you and I'm going to say you need to celebrate Teresa and her work just in the same way that I'm going to, you know, do that for other people. We are, we are not competitors. And the more that we can see each other as being allies and partners, the better it is for our community and for our country. So for me, it's like we've got to use all the tools, all the strategies, all the tactics, all the people, right? All the ways that we're showing up like together. And we have to see that as a plus. Maybe it feels messy. Maybe it feels chaotic. Together, we will make a beautiful chorus. And we have to remember that. We all play a part. I love that. I've really enjoyed this podcast, Monica. I'm so grateful to all your work and giving me um, an an openness to that, you know, I I didn't think I would share and I did. (laughs) So I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I'd love to stay in touch and see how we can continue this narrative journey together. So thank you. Muchas, muchas gracias, Monica, for joining us on Latinas from the block to the boardroom. Mi gente, if you would like to support any of these projects, please go to justice4women.org to learn more about the Bandana Project and also the Humans Who Feed Us, which is more information of all the migrant workers across the United States. She just started this. It is on YouTube. There is a short video which you can understand a little bit more about the humans who feed us across the United States. You can follow her on Instagram at the Latinx House, Justice for Women, or the Podistas, which is also all three of her organizations are located on Instagram. If you'd like to find her through LinkedIn, it's Monica Ramirez. And you can find her under justiceforwomen.org. And you can follow us at LatinasB2B on Instagram and also Facebook. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing in the community, you can follow us at LatinasB2B.com and sign up for our newsletter. And you can learn more about our seminars, small business or nonprofit of the week and the latest podcast. This podcast was sponsored and collaborated with 5E Leadership and Marketing. Today's podcast was engineered by Robert Lopez of Latinas B2B and produced by Teresa Gonzalez, founder and podcaster of Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Gracias.